Let's turn to the Word of God this morning, shall we? By opening our Bibles to the 10th chapter of the book of Hebrews. This is Hebrews chapter 10. As we continue our study of this great book, verse by verse and line by line, may the Lord impact us as we read His Word and study it today. Please follow along as I begin reading Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 5. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the volume of this book, it is written of me, to do your will, O God, previously saying, sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, that he may establish the second. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every high priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. From that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. For after he had said before, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, Their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Shall we pray together this morning? Oh, dear Lord God, oh, Jesus Christ, our Savior, willingly we bow before the greatness of your plan and purpose, your holy sovereign will that has brought to us this redemption through Jesus Christ, this perfect sacrifice which we study today. Lord, conform us to your will through the work of Jesus Christ, the Son, and let us in our hearts, grounded in the intellectual ability of our minds, adhere to these great truths of the accomplishments of your sacrifice, Lord Jesus, and what that brings to us. We ask your help in the attainment of these things and the keeping of them in the forefront of our minds, Lord. Let them not be washed away, but let us be living on them in faith. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. I've entitled this chapter, The Accomplishments of the New Covenant. We are now on part two. Part one, Christ's declaration, a body you have prepared for me. Part two, a sacrifice you have prepared to perfect us. A sacrifice you have prepared to perfect us. The bodily sacrifice of Jesus the Christ is the reason Jesus even said, a body you have prepared for me. That in the sacrifice and offering of the law of Moses, you took no pleasure, you had no desire for them. It was that God for hundreds of years waiting and teaching the people to wait, to anticipate the coming Christ who would take bodily form and in that form of man, 
would become the perfect sacrifice toward which all previous sacrifices for sin had pointed. None of the previous sacrifices were effective, effective permanently to cover sin. The only effective, perfect satisfaction and sacrifice was the body of Jesus Christ offered willingly by himself because Jesus said, Behold, verse 7, I have come. In the volume of this book it is written of me, Jesus declares, to do your will, O God. This sermon is about the perfect will of God and the perfect servant of that will. And in both of those things coming together, the will of God and he who followed the perfect will of God, certain very significant accomplishments were brought to all men who will believe. There are five significant accomplishments of the new covenant sacrifice, that is the sacrifice offered by Jesus Christ that secure eternally that secure eternally our perfection, our perfection as believers. Let's dig into it right away, shall we? The new covenant sacrifice accomplished something. And so the statement we make is what the new covenant sacrifice accomplished, and we will give you five in succession, five significant accomplishments of the new covenant sacrifice of Christ. Number one, letter A, the sanctifying of all believers. Jesus Christ, in offering that body that was prepared for him by God, very God, in doing the will of God himself, he accomplished the sanctifying of all believers. Note again, Hebrews 10 and verse 10. By that will, whose will? The will of God. I've come to do your will, he said in this book. By that will, listen, we have been sanctified. We, he is speaking to all Hebrew believers, he's speaking to believers, including all Hebrews. By the will of God, we have been sanctified, notice, through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ, not temporarily, but once for all time, once for all. So the new covenant sacrifice accomplished in the first place the sanctifying of all believers. And so if we're all sanctified, it's important that we know what he means by that so that we can believe that we are that. Hence faith. Our faith needs to be based on truth. And the truth that we must carry out of here in the first place, is that we as believers have already been sanctified by the sacrifice of the body of Christ. And so to sanctify, what is that? It is from a Greek root word, hagiadzo. Hagiadzo, the verbal form. Hagiadzo means to be set apart as sacred unto God, to be set apart. So of all the other people in the world, these ones, these believers, are set apart, made sacred unto God himself. God is essentially saying, I am taking you from all the unbelieving world of mankind that through centuries has lived and died, you I will sanctify unto myself and keep you for my very own. It is a sacred thing, meaning it has the idea of to make them holy or to consecrate them. So Christian, you are then set aside in the way of consecration, offered to the Lord, given to the Lord, set aside by the Lord for his own purposes. As Christ followed the will of his Father, you have been sanctified to follow the Father as well. Through that, you're made his own. 
This hagiadzo is the same root that we get the term that is applied to all Christians, and that term is saint. That title is saint. See, saints are not made by a church. They're not made by a church that acknowledges that somebody, a pope or somebody in that church has done a miracle. No, that's all erroneous, extra-biblical mumbo and jumbo, if you would uh, allow me those technical terms for error. Rather, this is something God makes himself. To be sanctified is to be made holy before God. To be useful and used by him. Just like in the temple, even the dishes, the bowls, the knives, the tools, every article for the ministry of the temple was hagiaz. It was set aside for God. It was holy, consecrated, only to be used in the temple. And so then, Christian, you have been set aside to be used by him. Uh, this we have here this verbal form is a, is a participle in the Greek, but it's a perfect passive participle. A perfect passive participle that is combined, confined with a finite verb. And I only say that because it teaches us the grammar of the Greek so that we can understand what this means in the English. And it means this. It means the great emphasis is being placed upon believers and the believer's permanent salvation, their permanent setting aside by God, by the will of God for himself. It is a past action. That's why it comes in the past with permanent results. Permanent results. So God did this in the past by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ's own body by the will of God, you are then made, you have been made permanently holy. You are permanently and for all times set aside unto God himself. As it says, you are no longer your own. You've been bought with a price. You are the Lord's. And we have to think of ourselves as God's not as our own. And isn't that hard? Oh, no, pastor. We're spiritual people. It's easy. No, it's not. It takes effort. That's why these things have to first be attained intellectually and then believe by faith permanently and then practice in life daily. Because we all start forgetting who, we, who owns us and who we belong to as the course of a week goes out. Can I please have an amen? We are easily led astray to thinking that we aren't holy unto God, but this is something God did. This is a declaration. He's not asking us if we want to. He's saying he accomplished this very positional status. What is positional? It means when God looks at you, your position is elevated to one of holiness before him. You say, but pastor, I'm not holy in everything I do. And I say, I know, me either. This is the position, the status you own. You have the title, if you will, saint. You've been set aside unto holiness unto God. It is basically the fulfillment of this command that is given to us by Peter himself, who, by the way, knew what it was to sin just a little. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15, he says, But as he who called you is holy, in other words, as God who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Be hagioi, be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, be holy for I am holy. 
So everything that God sets aside to worship him, whether it be an article in the temple, a golden basin in the temple of God, sanctified and set apart for him, or even more so the priests and the Levites set apart to serve God, very God, even more so under Christ, through the sacrifice of his very body, you are now made unto a servant to God most high. You are a useful and holy consecrated vessel to walk in holiness and to be holy permanently. Your position is a holy one. Now, practical holiness, that's, that's slightly different. And slightly because now you need to participate in holiness. So positional holiness is what verse 10 teaches. Practical holiness is what we practice through the rest of the Bible, and may I say later in Hebrews 10, and I'm saving that for later, so I'll quote some practical holiness principles and directives that are given to us by the Apostle Paul, uh, namely in Ephesians 4, notice verse 1. In Ephesians 4 and verse 1, I read, Paul says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling to which you are called with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. This is practical, holy living, wherein we must conform to the will of God. Jesus said, I've come to do your will. And now that we've been set aside as holy, we should say the same thing. I've been saved to do your will, O God. If we skip down in Ephesians chapter 4, now to verse 23... Uh, don't neglect the rest of the chapter in your own reading. Please go back and look at it. But in Ephesians 4, verse 23, we read Paul again saying, And be renewed in the spirit of your mind, that you may put on the new man, which was created according to God, in true righteousness, and now note, holiness. But he doesn't end there. Paul even extends into Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. Paul says, therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. So we have an imitation that we are practically participating in. Positionally, God says, you're holy. I'm setting you apart for myself to follow my will and to give me glory and to walk in holiness. Now you need to conform your will in the same way my son, your predecessor, did. Jesus said, I came to do your will, O God. And we would say along with him, I desire to do thy will, O God, because Jesus saved me and I'm set apart for holiness. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children, Ephesians 5, 1, now verse 2, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. This verse that says once again, by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. You have been once for all permanently rendered, sanctified, set apart unto God. You may not reverse that. Let me just say it very clearly. You cannot reverse that. This is a permanent change and accomplishment of Jesus Christ that you can't undo. And by the way, you shouldn't want to. You abide in that truth. Why did Jesus say, abide in me? Abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me will produce much fruit. What does abiding mean? Abiding means drinking from the will of God and turning it into the action of produce. Producing good fruit by obeying the will of God that is our life and our lifeblood. But I must move on. The second accomplishment of the new covenant sacrifice of Christ now is the eradicating 
eradicating the sin of all believers. Eradicating the sin of all believers. Key term, all believers. Let's look at verse 11 of our text. Again, chapter 10 of Hebrews. Verse 11 reads, And every high priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. In contrast, verse 12, But this man, referring to Jesus, But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. So first you need to realize that Jesus Christ accomplished the setting apart of yourself. You're sanctified unto God. Secondly, you need to accept his accomplishment of eradicating sin in you as a believer. Christ's sacrifice on the cross, hear me, removes sin. It takes away sins. You need to notice the contrasts that are being placed here by the writer of Hebrews through the divine inspiration of God. Look at verse 11 again. And every high priest stands ministering. The Levitical priests stood constantly. They never sat down in temple ministry because their work was to be seen as ongoing and constant. Men were constantly sinning. They were constantly sinning even as priests of God. And they were constantly offering those sacrifices to cover the sins of the people before God. They were standing in ministering daily and repeatedly. But notice this in verse, uh, verse 12. But this man, after he had offered sacrifice for sins forever, sat down. The priests stand constantly, continually, daily, year by year. Jesus Christ offered once and sat down in a sign of finishing work. Repeatedly on one hand, significantly, singularly on the other. Notice this other contrast we have there when we look at verse 11 again. These sacrifices, the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Notice that word, never. What does never mean? Never take away sins. The contrast to be noted, verse 12. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever. The contrast is never or forever. So if you want to keep one or the other, which are you going to keep? The one that never takes away sins or the one that forever took away sins once for all? We have to wrap our mind around this. We have to make our mind believe this. We have to act this out in faith and say... I believe Jesus covered all my sins once forever. Do you believe this? No, you don't. You're not even excited about it. Once forever, your sins are covered, and you're like, yeah, thanks, Pastor. What is this? What's wrong with us? Yahoo! I've been set apart by the accomplishment of Jesus Christ. My sins are forgiven. The past sins I did, the present sins I'm doing, any future sins I might do are all, once for all, covered in Jesus Christ. There we go. There's a woo-hoo. We almost got a little charismatic and nearly scared ourselves. You know, there is a time to be excited, and this is one where the Scripture needs to excite your spirit. I am secure in my faith, not by me, but by He. As Romans says, 
chapter 6, listen to these words of the Apostle Paul, knowing this. So do we know this? Knowing this, he says, that your old man was crucified with him, with Jesus, that the body of sin, hear me now, may be done away with. The body of sin may be done away with that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Do you know what happened? You've been bought out. You have come out of the darkness into the light. Your chains fell off. Didn't we just sing that this morning? My chains fell off. Were you set free? You know what you're set free to do? You're free to do what Jesus was able to do because he had no sin. You are now made into a new man that can voluntarily, willingly, desirably, with pleasure, obey God. That's the transformation. Did you now want to do what Jesus did and obey God? Jesus obeyed his commands from God. We obey our commands from God and his son, Jesus. Knowing that your old man was crucified, Paul says again, that the body of sin may be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he, he who has died has freed us from sin. Now, if we died in Christ, we believe that we also live with him knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him, for the death that he died, he died to sin, listen, once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead Indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Can I have an amen? Jesus died. We died with Christ. In reality, we died to sin. You die with Christ to sin. The reality is sin is dead and you now may obey and follow. There's a sense in which you have been inoculated from sin. So why would you yet return to it? We don't have the disease. We just have the flesh. We overcome the flesh now. We don't have the sin nature. The sin nature is gone. Sure, the flesh still wants some of the things it wants, but you've been relieved of the sin nature. You've been made into a new man. Don't return to it because you've been set free from it. We need to treat sin like Jesus does. And how did Jesus treat sin? He treated it like something that needed to be wiped out. And how do we visualize that? What kind of example can it be? Because, see, sin can seem on the outside pleasurable, can it not? Isn't that how the temptation, even our own temptations of ourselves, if I do this, ooh, boy, this will be the fun thing. This will be the good thing. This will be the pleasurable thing. This will be the cool thing. But we have to look at sin differently now. We have to look at the desires of the flesh differently. We have to look at it like, well, it's like crawling under your house in the middle of summer. If you have a crawl space like I do, or going down to that creepy part of the basement wherein there are dissidents living in your home, and even Proverbs tells us even in the castles of kings, where those spiders dwell, where those creepy crawly things run about, where they even cast their wonderful webs. Have you ever crawled through a spider web? Isn't that a glorious, pleasant feeling? No, you want that thing off. And if there's anything still on it, you want it off too. And you don't want it living with you and on you. You want it away, and you don't mind if that thing dies. I mean, this is why we have the pesticide problem in the United States of America, right? Say, so, okay, you're at the hardware store. Kills this, kills that, kills that. Yeah, baby, this kills everything. And you bring that stuff home, and you just go to town. Spraying it here. There's one. Spraying that stuff all over. The, look at them things die. You stand there. You're breathing that stuff in just to watch it die. 
Because we know we want that vermin dead. We have to start thinking of our own sin that way. I'm going to spray the right on that. Get it out of here. That's what Jesus did. He wiped out sin so we could walk away from sin. Mark it. It's an accomplishment of the new covenant sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Number three. The third accomplishment of the new covenant sacrifice is the extinguishing of all his, that is Jesus's enemies. The extinguishing of all his enemies. Look at verse 13, chapter 10, Hebrews. From that time, verse 12 says, sat down at the right hand of God. So sitting with a completed work Verse 13, from that time, from the time he completed that work, waiting, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. This is Hebraic. Uh, this is historic language. This is the language of kings and their sovereignty and subjects, those who have been subjected to the authority of a sovereign. That the king is above. There's a reason why we always have kings in, on thrones. And they sit on a dais. Marking visually their elevated status above all other mere mortals. And everyone else, when they come into their presence, what, what is supposed to happen before a king? You bow. You kneel. Or if you're in some of those Muslim countries, you prostrate yourself completely on the ground. Uh, and even in modern Japan with the emperor, they would lay down before the emperor on their face. It is that kind of language that is being brought forward that these of the day in which this was written, they all understood. You know, now the only king we have is King Charles. In England, I say we because we're somewhat related, or so I hear. He's not our king, but they have a king. But just how quickly and how far does his reign go that we might quickly bow before it, I think we've lost some of that meaning. But it needs to be regained here. It needs to be brought back to the forefront. So let's skip back just a little bit and remind ourselves of true sovereignty by looking to its description back in Hebrews chapter 2. Speaking of Jesus and his accomplishments, we have one back in chapter 2. We pick up the reading in verse 14. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, speaking of Jesus now, it says, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death, he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. Now pay attention as we go to verse 15. And release. So he, he defeats and destroys the power of the devil, the power of death, that is, the devil. And verse 15, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetimes, here's the word, subject to bondage. See, every single human that is born is under the sovereign reign and rule of death. We've just read that recently in Hebrews. It's given unto man how many times to die? Once. And after this, the judgment. All men die. The old saying, even in the United States, is there's two things that are, that are inescapable. Death and, help me, how did you know that? Because death is real, and so are taxes. Both are levied by a sovereign. Those who are over us in power. You don't pay your taxes, they have the power to make you bow. To make you open up your wallet. They can open up their, your wallet for you. They go to your bank, and they seize your money. You don't think it can happen? I almost said try it out. I do not advise trying this out. Take my word for it. Unless somebody said, well, pastor said. 
Do not try this at home. The sovereignty is the example I'm trying to bring forward. So Jesus is a triumph. Jesus is the king over Satan, and Satan has been made a subject to him. Death has been made subject to him. And the final defeat of Satan will be at the end of the tribulation period. Jesus is sitting and waiting till that time. When you read your Gospels, you sometimes are frustrated by Jesus. He would do a miracle, and he would tell the person, now go and tell no one. And you're like, why? Why not tell everybody? And some disobeyed, right, and went and told everybody. I've been healed. I've been delivered. And he told them not to tell anybody why. He said, because my time has not yet come was not yet for him to be revealed as the great savior of the world. Well, guess what? Right now it is not yet revealed, except for in our Bibles, that he is the final judge of the world and he will defeat all of his enemies and put them at his feet in subjection. They will be a footstool for him. He triumphs over all rulers, leaders, and all people who rejected Christ and those who opposed God. It is very clear in Paul's writings in 1 Corinthians 15. Note these words in 24. Then comes the end. 1 Corinthians 15, 24. Then comes the end. When he, Jesus, delivers the kingdom, of, the kingdom to God the Father... When he puts, listen, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. So all rule, all authority, all power will be ended. The extinguishing of all his enemies. That is what this one verse, verse 13 in Hebrews 10 is stating. It is stating that there is an end and there's a time period between that time and this. And he's waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. In 1 Corinthians again, verse 15, and, and, or chapter 15, verse 25, it says, For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. And the last enemy that will be destroyed is death, for he has put all things under his feet. Jesus is the sovereign Lord. This is the Lordship of Jesus. There is one Lord. There is one God. There is one sacrifice for sin. And Jesus is He. 1 Corinthians again, chapter 8, verse 6. Paul says, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we for Him. That's same as saying, set apart for him. And one Lord, Jesus Christ. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom, listen, are all things and through whom we live. So if you wonder, how are all things? How are those things existing? How do they come to be and how are they maintained? All things through Jesus the Christ. He is Lord and sovereign of all. As the Bible says, in him we live and we move and we have our being. So Jesus is not delaying to make us suffer more. This waiting period is not some kind of thing wherein God has forgotten about what is going to happen. No, this is part of God's plan and purpose. He has exterminated, he has extinguished his enemies, and he's waiting for the time, the time is right, for Jesus to do that very will of God. He said, I have come to do your will, O God. And the will of God for now is that Jesus wait. Philippians chapter 2, we read the kenosis, the humbling of Jesus. The true translation of a body you have prepared for me is here in exegesis form. In Philippians 2.8 Paul says, and being found in the appearance as a man, Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him uh, the name which is above every name. 
And at that name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven, of those on earth, of those under the earth. Everyone will bow. Those who believe will bow. Those who are angels in heaven will bow. Those who are rejectors of Christ in hell below will bow. All will bow that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That he is the sovereign one, the master of all to the glory of God the Father. The flame of mankind's rebellion will be extinguished by a flood of living water, Jesus Christ, the King. Fourth, the fourth accomplishment of the new covenant sacrifice of Christ, the perfecting of all saints forever. The perfecting of all saints forever. Look at verse 14, Hebrews 10. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. A couple of nuances going on in our text here. And one of the nuances is now the process of sanctification is being marked out rather than positionally being set aside as previously. But more importantly for us to look at first is this word perfected. We have seen perfect and complete and mature used of this same Greek term that is now very custom for us because our writer of Hebrews has chosen it very specifically according to God's will for this purpose. It is teleao, a verb form of teleos. Perfected is our translation, and it is in its parsing, if you parse a verb in the Greek, it is a perfect, active, indicative. Indicatives mean this, facts. This is just how it is. Now, I know that's a little simple, but we're going to use that, and that helps you understand. An indicative, it's the facts. It's perfect. It's active. It's indicative. And so there's a couple of aspects of this Greek root word, teleos, that we now have here in this verb form, teleao, that I want to bring to the forefront. Two more aspects of this. Perfected, as we have looked at before, can mean to be made mature. Not perfect in every sense of the word, but matured to that level of following Jesus Christ. Also to be complete, whether in your position before him or complete in the work that he's doing in you, which is also an act of maturity. But also there's a fruition of all this work that he is doing in us, an idea of a finished order. And sometimes this word is used like this. And I want to point this out before I get to how this verse is using this word. Uh, the first aspect of this root word teleos is this. It is, number one, the addition of what is lacking in order to make them complete. To make them complete or lacking nothing, you might say finished. What does it take to finish the job? What is he going to bring to this that will finish his work in you? And by example, I use 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7. Paul says, unless I should be exalted above the measure of the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me. An addition of something that's lacking. We all know about Paul's thorn in the flesh. This is the text that teaches it. It seems to be a real, literal, literal physical problem. A malady. A weakness of some kind that he carried every single day. He had asked God three times to take it away from him. God said, no, I won't do it. My grace is sufficient for you. And then he tells him a reason. I'm using this pain in your life. I'm using this difficulty in your life to protect you and to grow you up and complete you. To make you perfect, if you will. 
And this is how he says it. Lest I should be exalted above the measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted beyond measure, unless you become prideful. Paul just said, I've done miracles. Through his hands, by the power of the Holy Spirit, he has seen people healed. He has had his shadow cross over and people healed. All these things going on. A guy falls out of a roof and dies. He goes and lays on top of the guy. He comes back to life. He even says, I, I know a certain man who was taken up into the third heaven and saw the wondrous things there. And so God, to keep him and his flesh in line, buffeted him. That's why we sing the song, whatever God wills is right, is good. If God gives you difficulty, it's not because he hates you, it's because he loves you and he is protecting you from yourself and growing you up. I heard that. There was just an amen. That means we're growing up. When we can say that in the midst of adversity, we're growing up. We're being perfected. Paul even goes on concerning this thing. I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made, here's our word, perfect in weakness. I've made you weak so you can grow up. I've made you weak so you can have the work finished in you. He who began a good work in you is faithful that he will do it. And then trials and tribulations, and, and we have different things happen in our bodies, and we say, wah, 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 what's God doing to me? I must be in sin. No, you must be ready and be molded for God's service. Therefore, most gladly, oh, you thought I was going to skip that part. In 2 Corinthians 12, this final verse, 10, he says, therefore, gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest on me. Excuse me, that's the end of verse 9. Gladly. Oh, that's maturity. Ain't it great? I can't walk. Ain't it great? I'm going to glory in this weakness. Hello? Hello? You still there? Yeah, you're still there. This is the message of, of Christ. To bring to an end the second aspect, and that's what's being taught here in verse 14. By one offering, he has perfected those who are being sanctified forever. To bring to an end, it means to be at the goal line. The goal of the Christian walk is final and complete sanctification, also known as glorification. To bring to the end the goal, the promised and eternal salvation perfectly to make a perfectly mature spiritual man. Wouldn't you like to be a perfectly mature spiritual man? Say amen. Say it louder. There we go. See, this very term is used of Jesus, who is the first fruits of the perfection of mankind. He walked as a man. Yes, he was God at the same time, but he laid aside all of the use of his godly attributes. He walked as a weak man, dependent upon God by faith, his power from the Holy Spirit. And in Hebrews 5, we learn this, verse 9, and having been perfected, it says of Jesus, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. As he obeyed, we obey. Hebrews 7, 28, for the law appoints as high priests men who have weaknesses, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the son who has been perfected forever, bringing to the end goal, now us, of those who are redeemed by this perfect Jesus. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22, we will exegete it in detail soon. Soon meaning, you know, hopefully before Jesus comes. Hebrews 12, 22, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the holy city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an immeasurable company of angels, to the general assembly, here it is, and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven 
to God the judge of all, to the, listen, to the spirits of just men made perfect. Finally, you cross the goal. Finally, perfected. And God looks at it as though it has already been accomplished through the sacrifice of his son. Will you be finally perfected? Yes, you will. What a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see. Our status as perfect ones is eternally secure, perfectly so. Perfectly so. Number five. The final accomplishment here in this block of verses is this. Notice the fulfilling of all the promises of the new covenant. The fulfilling of all the promises of the new covenant. Why must Jesus die? Why sacrifice himself to place in power those covenant promises? And here it is. Verse 15, and the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. For after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and in their minds I will write them. And then he adds, their sin and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of these, there is also no longer an offering for sin. This fulfilling of all the promises of the new covenant, Jeremiah, hundreds of years prior, these very words were written by the prophet and it will be done by the will of God. Here we see fulfilled minds full of the word of God, hearts with the word of God there. God being our God, we being his people, and the total and complete forgiveness of sins, complete. There's a final question in a real way that the writer is asking the Hebrew believers, and I would ask you believers here present the same question. In our turn, how about you? Will you by faith accept the accomplishments of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ in the new covenant? Or will you reject them? They're finished. They're complete. They're for all who believe. But you must believe that it is true to be a real believer. That he indeed set you apart. Defeated all the enemies and so forth. And he will fulfill his promises. I pray you do this morning. For that is faith. Let's pray. Lord God in heaven. We trust you. And your word. We have faith in the accomplished sacrifice of Jesus Christ, our sovereign Lord. And we beg this morning to live by that faith. Faith in what he accomplished, not in what we accomplished for ourselves. Let us trust these truths and live in strength and endurance until the final perfection which you have promised when we reach the goal of being holy in totality before you and for your glory. And this we ask in Jesus' name. And everyone join me in saying, Amen.